Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. As always, we want to give a special shout out to our season two sponsor, Accurix. That's A-C-C-U-R-I-C-S. Accurix is a infrastructure as code security company, which helps codify security for your cloud native infrastructure by codifying security throughout the development lifecycle. They also manage the popular open source IAC project, TerraScan. Visit them at Accurix.com for more. Thank you for joining us on the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, and today we have John Diabruzzo on. John, thank you for being on. Well, Chris, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Definitely. We're excited to hear from you. For folks not familiar with your background, do you mind telling us a bit about your background in, in cybersecurity? Absolutely. Yeah. So I started off in cybersecurity many, many years ago, just engulfed myself with education, learning, you know, building out systems and, and saw the need for offensive security and purple teaming. And that's what brings me here today to talk about. That's awesome. So given your wide range of experience and background, you know, with uh, offensive security, you know, cyber, cloud computing, you know, what would you say for cloud in particular, what would you say some of the most common types of attacks are for cloud platforms? Sure, sure. So cloud, uh, like like anything else, has evolved and, and has come extremely complex for, for companies to manage, to govern, and to have visibility. So there's some great tools in the, in the cloud, and we'll discuss them later on in the talk, but some of the low-hanging fruit that have just historically always been there is the, the number one, which everyone kind of knows about, and it's just a real big problem, right? So open open storage buckets, right, Un, or misconfigured access has led to many, many data breaches, right? So, you know, before I start listing statistics, you know, I'll preface with, you know, 60% of all statistics are made up, right? <laughs> but um, according to recent statistics from Bleeping Computers, as many as 7% of all S3 buckets are completely public, accessible without any authentication, and 35% are unencrypted, right? So this has led to many, 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 many breaches, right? And then kind of a newer study shows that about 20% of public AWS S3 buckets are writable. So we have a combination of open, unauthenticated access, unencrypted, and just writable buckets, right? So those have led to many breaches, and I'll do my best to not call out any great companies, right? But uh, there's been many, many companies historically that have suffered from that. So that's that's the biggest low-hanging fruit item that I always talk about. Any comments, concerns on that one, Chris? Do you want yeah, I mean, I definitely think we've all seen the notorious stories around, you know, in, insecure storage and, and cloud misconfigurations. You know, I forget the exact number, but, you know, 95 plus percent of cloud data breaches essentially are projected to continue to be the cloud or the customer's uh, fault. You know, and obviously that's a technical issue, right, uh, re- related to how you configure things and how you set things up. But any any thoughts around the workforce aspect? Because I think a part of that issue is, you know, obviously it's a technical issue, but it, it means there's, there's someone somewhere that lacks the knowledge of what they're doing on these platforms. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, th- that actually brings us to my second point, right, which is credential leakage and over-permissioned access, right? So we have a combination of just 
over permission access. So your S3 bucket should have the proper con- controls on it. But let's let's be honest, right? Identity and access management is really complicated. And it's not that people want to innately do things incorrectly. It's just they don't know the risks or they don't know how to do it better, right? So credential leakage has caused a ton of breaches and 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 just you know initial access to companies through either something as simple as Git repos, right? It's just, hey, I forgot to remove my creds. HashiCorp does a phenomenal job at you know, incorporating with, with Vault and you know solving that solution. But bottom line is it's it's still a problem. And you know, GitHub has also done a phenomenal job at you know using regular expressions and other techniques to sift through uh, the repos, but that is another human element that you know is, is really hard to change the behavior unless you have automated security scanning in place to prevent these things. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of things that you mentioned from a tool perspective that are being done and can be done around secrets management. You know, whether it's uh, identifying things in the pipeline or, or actually, you know, uh, using uh, secrets management tooling like Vault from HashiCorp to kind of address the issue. That's uh, so definitely good points there. Another thing I want to ask you is, you know, you, your background in, in offensive security. You know, what would you say are some of the top three skills that someone would need to have if they wanted to pursue a career in red team or penetration testing, for example? Sure. So great question. And it's, it's, you know, somewhat of a typical answer, but I, I typically split the question into two pieces. One is a human element, right? Which is behavioral attitude perspective. And then the second element is the skill set, right? So the number one thing that I always look for when I'm hiring different cybersecurity professionals is curiosity and thinking outside the box, right? You, you have to look at systems in a way that are kind of intended to not be looked at and to be able to adapt and, and build a strategy around those, around that methodology, right? The second element is having a deep knowledge of systems. So that's the, the skill set, right? So understanding how protocols work, understanding how systems are built, understanding how uh, the natural f- data flow of an application works and the architecture of an application. That's, you know, it's so crucial for a red teamer to possess an understanding of all systems and not just one or two, right? And then the third skill set, which is growing so widely now, is software development, right? So the benefits of knowing how to develop your own tools are substantial, right? Because during red team operations, there are little nuances to the flow where you have a large data set or you want to scrape data or you want to you know, fuzz APIs and you want to do specific little details. And let's, you know, let's be honest, there's a lot of tools out there to do a lot of things, but not all of them do things the way you may want them to. And it's critical to being able to adapt and taking a piece of an open source tool, modifying it and creating something you know, that's beneficial to your operation. Yeah, I think all three of those things are absolutely critical, you know, in, in terms of not even just pen testing, but cybersecurity in general, like that that infinite level of curiosity and hunger because things change constantly, you know, technology is constantly moving. So it can be exhausting if you aren't the type that likes to continuously learn, you know, try to keep up with that. It can be really exhausting. And I love the call out around software too, is, you know, we look at especially cloud native environments, the increased, you know, increased like codification of everything, you know, infrastructure is code, policy is code. Everything is essentially becoming code. So being able to write software 
software, like you said, to take a tool or take, you know, something and make it do what you want it to do is absolutely critical too. You know, for folks that are looking to learn in terms of offensive security, are there any certain, you know, learning resources or open source tooling or anything like that that you want to give a shout out to? Absolutely. So I get a lot of students that ask me this question, right? And in the, in the world of cyber, it's it's really hot right now. A lot of people want to transition into it. A lot of people that are in it want to develop their skills and expand them. And the reality is it's it can be very expensive and it, and it can be very daunting to look at the world of information. We have so much info, right? So I'm going to you know, talk about some tools that I've used and some people that have really, I think, have provided great, great structure to the learning process because you can get lost very quickly on the amount of certifications and tech stacks and platforms and this and that. So the biggest one, right, for, for web pen testing specifically, and a lot of people know about it. It's not like this, you know, brand new thing. It's Port Swigger Academy, right? It's free. It's great documentation, phenomenal labs. You're, you're trained on, on utilizing Burp Suite, which is a very widely used tool in any offensive security, any, um, you know, blue team as well. Uh, just, you know, testing whatever op- operation that you're uh, trying to achieve. Now, sign from Portswigger, try Hack Me. Okay, so Try Hack Me has done a phenomenal job at not only providing a, a platform on the web where you don't have to deploy a VPN and a, a, you know, a virtual machine and worry about resources. They do it all in the web, right? So they have a free tier and a paid tier. I personally love the paid tier. It, it's, I think it's well worth the investment. I believe it was somewhere around $90 for the year. I mean, that's unheard of, right? Pentesters Academy, another great resource, another great website. Now, I want to give a shout out to Red Team Nation. So Red Team Nation, uh, one of the co-founders was a gentleman named Brendan Dennis. And just a phenomenal guy, very, very knowledgeable, and just well-built material around the real-world application of the Red Teamer, right? Also, John Strand with Black Hills Information Security, phenomenal way to pay-as-you-can training. I mean, you know, everything from threat hunting to, you know, beacon analysis to C2 uh, infrastructure. Now, when it comes in regards to cloud pen testing, Bo Bellick from Black Hills Information Security as well has a class on uh, breaching cloud perimeter. It, now, it's not free, but it's well worth the money, right? He, he's just a really sharp guy. Another... Another great academy or website, rather, is TCM Security. Uh, they have a, a, a pen testing module that's phenomenal as well. And maybe something that is not necessarily a training platform, but something to keep you up to date with your skills. So Twitch has a, a Black Hat Ethical Hacking uh, podcast as well that streams on like the weekend, Saturdays and Sundays for an hour. I believe it's like $3 or something to subscribe, but... It, it, they just walk you through adversary emulation and just some really great perspectives on security that maybe you don't want to sit down and, and, and study, but you still want to stay current on the weekends and keep your mind fresh. So those are things that I use on a weekly basis and daily basis that have helped me in the industry. 
Yeah, I think the, so many of the ones you called out jumped out to me right away. Like as you were talking, you know, I was thinking of John Strand and his pay as you go approach. And I thought that was really awesome. And I'm definitely familiar with TCM and some of the others you mentioned too. And one thing I just love about, you know, the overarching uh, list of resources you gave is, you know, it's kind of like a democratized availability in terms of training and learning when it comes to cybersecurity and, and red teaming and such. You know, when I first started in cybersecurity, I'm sure you can relate you know, there was resources and there was books and, and some things out there, you know, forums and stuff, but you couldn't like do some of the capabilities you do now. Like you just talked about browser-based learning, for example. I use a site called uh, Code Cloud and it's like Kubernetes and DevOps focus, for example. And it's like just browser-based learning. It throws you right into a Kubernetes, you know, CLI environment all from the browser. You don't need to install anything or run anything locally. And that's kind of what you touched on with some of the training too. And there's just so many resources out there for people to use nowadays and take advantage of. And I think it, uh, you know, there's no shortage of things to, to use to learn. It's just that you got to have that curiosity like you talked about earlier. Absolutely. I agree 100%. When I first started out and I wanted to learn, it, it was frustrating because it took me so much time to just get a simple lab started to just learn the actual topic, right? So these different platforms really take the complexity out of that. Now, granted, there's value in that. There's value in setting up your labs. There's value in troubleshooting, you know, your Linux distro and your, your package installs and all that stuff. But maybe that value is not exactly needed right away, right? You'll learn that as you go. So. Yeah, I think that's a great call out. There's definitely value to, to be learned. You know, no longer do we need to set up uh, physical equipment and hardware and stuff like that, but there's a lot you learn throughout that process. Definitely uh, keep that in mind. You know, I wanted to shift a little bit. We talked a lot about red team and, and such, but, you know, I know you also uh, have stood up several purple teams in, in some of the roles you've been in. You know, how is purple teaming different than traditional red, uh, red teaming or pen testing, for example? Sure. Another great question. So let's let's kind of circle back and let's let's identify, like, where red team came from, right? So, like, I always like to talk about where security came from, right? Because maybe 10 years ago, it was it was information assurance, right? So where, where did where did we come from and where are we now and where are we going, right? Those are the big questions to ask. So in my, in my eyes, you know, red teamers are were a collection of seasoned professionals from the network security, software development, system administration, right? And they said, well, we have all these systems. How can we, you know, manipulate them? How can we, you know, get in in, in a way that's non-conventional, right? And then... We've done red teaming for quite a while, and we have done blue teaming for quite a while, right? And they're both immensely valuable to the to the corporation. In my eyes, purple teaming is designed as a feedback loop, right? And it's and it's also a measurement of your red and blue teams as well as your critical systems, right? So we oftentimes in security like to throw money at complex problems. And sometimes that works, but oftentimes it doesn't, right? So a really fun equation I like to come up with is like, Bad data, really expensive, fancy tool, bad result, right? So are your systems working the way that they're supposed to? Is your logging up to par? And how quickly can you respond to an incident? And that's the true value add from purple teaming. So the way it differs is, in my opinion, it's more of the business value added than just a a simple operation readout, right? Because typically what's happened is the red team does a phenomenal job. They hand over their data and their report to the blue team. And then the blue team kind of finds a way to incorporate it, patch management, vulnerability assessment, X, Y, and Z. What purple team does and the way that I like to do purple teaming is map it to a MITRE, the MITRE framework, 
and identify the key techniques, right? And the visibility gaps in your logging so that you can create a proactive security module and not a reactive, which has historically been in place. And the, yeah. way to, and the way to measure that is by the result of the purple team. And that's, that's my philosophy. A lot of people have different definitions, but that's mine. Now, I think that was a really great explanation of things. You know, you, you said some things that made me think of other things as well. You talked about communication and feedback loops, for example, and that often, you know, is associated with the, the DevOps and DevSecOps, right? Like, you know, getting those those shorter, faster feedback loops. And I think there's value in that from a security perspective as, as far as the purple team goes. And I, lo- I love the business context, like you said, tying it to organizational outcomes versus trying to kind of operating in a silo or a vacuum. I think that's huge, too. For organizations that traditionally, you know, have a, a more of a legacy approach in terms of red or blue teams, for example, but wanted to shift to like building out a purple team or, or how operating a purple team, you know, where do you recommend they begin? Sure. Great. Another great question. So I, I get made fun of often by saying this, but there's a lot of ways to slice a pizza, right? So there's not one strategy for every organization, but there are many, right? So to accomplish the goal, I often, you know, will take the key contributors and the more seasoned veteran folks from the blue team, from IR, from SOC, from red team, from DevSecOps, right? And build a collaborative effort to identify key metrics and goals in the organization, right? So one amazing tool that I used that I actually got, I didn't create it. I can't take credit for it. Sans, I, I was watching a, Sans webcast on purple teaming by George Urchias and uh, it's a platform called Vector. And the beautiful thing about Vector is what it does is it allows you to document every step of the process, incorporate your TTPs, incorporate your tooling, be able to document what process or what stage in the, in the uh, attack kill chain your attack was captured in, as well as be able to provide KPIs, so what was not detected, what was detected, and when it was detected. And that that's a real value add. The other thing that I would mention is, you know, from a um, – so that, that's a manual standpoint, right? But there are threat simulation tools that are out there. You know, a big one is Caldera, right? So I'm not a huge proponent of automated simulation tools, but there is still value in those systems. Um, also – uh, just a side note is at the end of this podcast, um, if you're interested in any of these tools that I'm mentioning or links that you want to read about, we will be releasing a, a document for this podcast so that you can actually, after this podcast, you can run and jump and uh, plan out your next Purple Team operation as well. That's awesome. I think that'll be an invaluable resource for people to take and uh, pick up with and do some further investigation or, or even labbing, depending on what they're looking for. Uh, so the last question we always ask folks is, what does the term cyber resilience mean to you? Sure. So cyber resilience, right? It's, in my eyes, it's a, it's a company's capacity to continually deliver on its primary goals, even if they're faced with cyber threats. Now that sounds simple, right? But how do we measure cyber resilience, right? So we do that in stages. So Cyber resilience, the only thing constant in cyber is change, I like to say, right? Just every day, it seems like there's a new zero day, there's a new incident, there's a new public, you know, vulnerability that's patched. And, you know, obviously Microsoft does a phenomenal job every Tuesday at, at releasing that. So I like to break it down into not only what cyber resilience is, 
but how is it measured, right? So the first thing I always recommend is, are, is your organization following a framework? And if you are, how, how are you reaching your compliance on that framework? Right? Is it an automated compliance? Are you checking the box during an audit? And then after the audit, okay, we're good. We, we, we passed our audit. Or is it a continual cycle of, you know, just like to the question that you initially asked, which low hanging fruit, how many companies and organizations struggle with port 22 and 3389 open to the world? I mean, to this day, it's still a problem, right? So, how many developers use that default VPC to deploy quote unquote dev environments and never destroy them after they're done? I mean, these things happen all the time, right? So two, my recommendation would be the ability to withstand. How do you adapt when things go wrong, right? What do you, do you have IR playbooks in place? Do you have sort? Do you have threat Intel in, in your EDR solutions or in your cloud platforms that you're utilizing? And then three, right? Are your defenses doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? So I've tested, you know, plenty of IDS and IPS platforms, plenty of WAF, plenty of you know different types of firewalls, and a lot of times they're 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 not alerting as to what you think they are, right? Also, a lot of companies rush, rush, rush to log everything, and that's great in theory, and it's definitely a requirement in compliance, right? And it's and it's essential for investigation. But are you building correlation searches that map to techniques, or are you just looking for you know hash, hashes, URLs, IP addresses, right? These are all things that are super important to building a resilient cyber threat model and planning, right? And then for you know, it brings me to my fourth point, which is, you know, real-time inspection, right? So are you getting real-time data or is there a latency of like, okay, well, let's do an investigation on logs that are a week old or two weeks old, or are you doing annual pen tests? You know, I've, I've heard that from so many organizations. Well, we do pen testing annually. How many code releases do you push a day versus how many pen tests do you do on those new features, right? So that's a big one. And then, um, you know, the fifth recommendation I always you know, look at is how efficient are you in combating incidents? What, how, like how long does it take to, to investigate and complete an incident? Does it take a week? Does it take an hour? Does it take, you know, a month? What, what are the you know, main incidents, right? And then after an incident happens, how do you recover? So what's your, what's your recovery time to objective? What's your, you know, recovery point to objective? And how do you measure those things? These things are critical in building cyber resilience, right? And then lastly, uh, adapting, right? So cybersecurity is not a destination, it's a journey. And we have to treat that. And uh, Simon Sinek really explains this well when he talks about infinite and finite, right? So business is an infinite game. We can't apply finite policies and procedures to an infinite strategy of cyber resilience. So that's my, uh, you know, recommendation when building cyber resilience. Yeah, that's a really, really awesome answer. And I was going to call out several things, but I love the, uh, the finite first infinite thing. And I think I'll leave it with that. So with that said, thank you for coming on the show. And it was really great to hear from you. Thank you, Chris. Honor to be here. And I really look forward to uh, releasing the article. And if anyone has any um, you know, questions, you can reach out on Twitter or uh, johndcyber.com. 
Thank you. Awesome. Sounds good.